You hear ringing and the quick release of a door as your eyes slowly open. The spacecraft stimuli shock your brain awake. You look around you to see your fellow astronaut crew also pulling themselves up from their very own torpor chambers. Torpor uses therapeutic hypothermia, which puts the crew in an unconscious state with a lowered body temperature and metabolic rate to save resources during space travel. Very similar to hibernation. You check the calendar. It's day 260 out of a 340-day mission to one of the Martian moons. You're accelerating along just fine, thanks to the six giant electric engines you have aboard the spacecraft. Next, you check your personalized tasks list, and it looks like it's your day to monitor the health of the nuclear fission reactors, a task you are always marveled by. You feel irked by the fact that you live right above the source of nuclear energy, but it's used to power the incredible electric propulsion system that allows you to even get to the Martian moons in the first place. Time to get the day started. You want the electrons to keep generating. God knows nobody wants this mission to get any longer. Hannah, that story was really cool. Thanks, Anna. You wrote it yourself, right? Yes, I did. That's very impressive. I am not a very good fictional writer. Oh, man, Anna, you're a fantastic writer. Not a very good fictional writer. That's not true. That was really good. What was your inspiration? So I was actually inspired by, I did this research project with a bunch of other grad students when I was in grad school for the space challenge. And the whole premise of the space challenge was design a mission to Mars. So I took a bit of tidbits from that. Um, research paper and used it as inspiration. It was a lot of fun to write. It sounded really good. You did a really nice job. Thank you. So on Monday, we had the day off work, um, and somebody we know had, like, a cross-stitch party. So I went online, and I was like, I wonder if I can find a cool space cross-stitch, because the internet has everything. Etsy, apparently, is the place to get digital cross-stitch patterns, if you just want the pattern. Um, And they had a blueprint of the Saturn V. I wonder if I can find what the name of the Etsy store is. He has a bunch of other cool stuff. Uh, but it's a really cool cross-stitch. So I worked on, I've been working on that. I haven't cross-stitched in a really long time. Yeah, it's a beautiful cross-stitch pattern. Anna showed me and I was like, can I do that one too? It's um, really cool. Yeah. It's also all in white because it's supposed to be like a blueprint. So it's just a blue fabric and then a white pattern, which is awesome because you only I only had to buy one color of embroidered glove. Um, it's this guy called X. So like the letter X, Stitch Collective. We'll link him in our sources for this, but he has a Saturn V blueprint cross-stitch. I guess if you just type that in on Etsy, um, it's so cool. I did not know what cross-stitching was before this party invite, um, so I looked it up on Pinterest, and there are just so many beautiful patterns. It's very fun. It's also a lot easier to pick up than knitting, because mm-hmm. the actual stitch itself is not that hard. Yes. It's more just about patience yes. than anything else. <laughs> but the actual, like, making the X's is not very hard. It's a very good test of patience. Yeah. You have to be really patient. Yeah. Um, but it's not like knitting, where that takes a little bit more skill. At least the level of cross-stitching I do. It's um, like a cross between painting but with a needle and thread. It's like paint by numbers, exactly. but with a needle and thread. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's really fun. So we did that on Monday. It was awesome. It was so fun. So fun. What did you do today? I made, okay, so I made some chilaquiles. Anna you... and I went to, on this trip to Mexico. We went on vacation to Cabo a yeah, few weeks ago. With a few of our other friends. And I learned something new. I learned about 
how chilaquiles, I knew what they were, but I didn't realize that they were a common Mexican breakfast item. They're really good. They're delicious. And they're great for breakfast. For those of you who don't know, they're basically these enchilada sauce soaked nachos. We were calling them the soggy nachos. <laughs> they're delicious. But they're though. amazing. They're really good. Um, you made them for dinner? I, I did. I made them good. and it was so good. I was so happy with how they turned out. All right. On that note, let's talk about some actual happenings in space. Heck yeah. So let's we got do some it. exciting news <laughs> for space and women. A twofer, really. Heck yes. So Christina Koch just got back to Earth from the ISS, and she set the record for the longest continuous stay in space for a woman. 328 consecutive days. That's nuts. It's incredible. Previously, the record was held by Peggy Whitson, and she had 288 days. And then she just fell short of Scott Kelly, who um, he wrote a book called Endeavor, called Uh like Endeavor, His Year in Space. It's actually a really cool book. Um... He has the longest record for, uh, among everybody. So he has 340 consecutive days in space. Wow. Yeah. So what's really neat about that is previously extended space missions, they really only had, for periods of that time, they only had data from mostly men. Right. And while, uh, and there are biological differences between biological men and biological women. Right. So NASA really wanted to study the long-term effects of spaceflight on the human body yes. through this mission, and specifically on women's bodies. Yes, exactly. Right. And so I think that's really awesome. I think it's fantastic. There's also a really adorable video of her coming home and seeing her dog for the first time. Yeah. On, I think on her Instagram. I read really that article sweet. too. I think she posted it on her Instagram. It was yeah, really cute. Yeah, it's just a picture of her dog at the window, scratching at the so window. so excited. It's super cute. <laughs> I love dogs. I love dogs I loved it. And actually, we mentioned this a few episodes ago, but she was also part of the all-women spacewalk um, with Jessica Meir. Yeah, you can actually find them both on Instagram. I think it's astro underscore Christina and astro underscore Jessica. Yes. Fun fact, the prefix astro tends to only be used by astronauts. I didn't know that. It's kind of a unspoken rule. It's not, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. But it's kind of like an unspoken. The rules of the game. You've earned it. Yes, you've earned it. Yeah, so that's really awesome. That's and then awesome. she's only 41 years old. For some reason, I thought she'd be a lot older than that. Yeah, that's incredibly young. But yeah. yeah, I feel like astronauts typically and historically we've seen the astronauts be much older because they have to have so many qualifications. Yeah, and they have incredibly long list of accolades, yeah. which she does. And she has all these accolades at such the young age of 41. Yeah. Yeah, so um, she's pretty awesome. It is awesome. Welcome back, Christina. Welcome back. Earth missed you. Also, another fun tidbit, astronaut applications open March 2nd, so if you are so inclined, go apply. (laughs) I didn't realize they were open again. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome, because they just chose that other astronaut class. Yeah. For Artemis, I think? I think that's what the applications are for, actually. Oh, is that what they're opening them for? Yeah. Oh, nice. Cool. So I guess if you want to try to go to the moon. Yes. Check it out. I'm sure you can just find it on the NASA website or just Google it. And then also last week was International Women in Science uh, Day. It was. It was. We posted on our Instagram about it. We did. So we just wanted to say happy International Women in Science Day. To all you awesome women out there. Thank you for being you. Keep doing science. Heck yeah. (laughs) Well, should we get started? Yeah. But before we get into it. Let's introduce ourselves. I think we should. So I'm Anna. And I'm Henna. And this is... But But it it is Rocket Science. Science. 
Do you want to jump into this one? I'm excited. Let's I feel do like it. I'm really excited for this we one. We took a little break after our first five episodes, and I started to get Nancy to go at it again. So do you want, Hannah, what is this episode about? So this episode is all about electric propulsion. Yeah, this is a good one. Hannah actually picked this topic. I knew electric propulsion existed, but had never really dug that deeply into it. And it's yeah. really cool. It's really cool. I was just thinking about how we talked about the linear air spike engine and um, how electric propulsion is such a unique field and we don't really discuss it because we don't really see it on at during launches. No. So, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but yes. electric propulsion, you can't get a ton of thrust from it. Exactly. So you won't get enough thrust, at least for the technology that exists right now, to get a rocket off the ground. Right. But it is used for a lot of long-term missions. Yep. And it's really cool. And we're going to explain a little bit more to you about yeah. that. So, Hannah, do you want to give us a technological description? Yes. Slash breakdown yes. of electric propulsion? I would love to, Anna. So I'm going to go ahead and start with a overall electric propulsion 101, and then I'll dive a little deeper into it. So like we just mentioned, the rocket launches that we see on the news or that you actually get to see in per- in person are utilizing chemical propulsion. So in a rocket engine, fuel and a source of oxygen, called an oxidizer, are mixed and exploded in a combustion chamber. The combustion produces hot exhaust, which is then passed through a nozzle to accelerate the flow of gas and therefore produce thrust. This is all for chemical propulsion. So typically you see chemical propulsion for first stages and second stages of rockets because, like Anna just mentioned, they produce a lot of thrust. Um, They also have a low specific impulse. So this is an incredibly important term in aerospace engineering. Specific impulse is the important term. It's also abbreviated as ISP. So what ISP is, is that it's thrust divided by the propellant mass flow rate. It took me so long to understand what ISP was. Yeah, because the, the, the units is seconds. Yes, and so I would always get really confused. Right. Because ISP does not represent, it's not necessarily time. Right. It's just how the units work out. Yes. And, so it is yeah. a function of time because mass flow rate is time dependent. Exactly. But the units make it look just like time. Right. And, and it's like, not. What? It only lasts for this long? <laughs> but no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I would get really confused. <laughs> right. Because so, um, I'll keep going. So chemical propulsion systems are limited to ISP specific impulse values of 500 seconds. So when I first saw this back in the day when I was just learning aerospace engineering, my brain would have been like, 500 seconds? Is that how long this lasts for? That's very short. No. It makes no sense. <laughs> it's really just what it's trying to tell you is you need this much propellant to generate this much thrust. Exactly. It's almost like yep. an engine efficiency term. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a way to represent engine efficiency. Yes. So you want to be able to generate a lot of thrust with not that much propellant. Exactly. That would be ideal. Exactly. Um, it's kind of like miles per gallon for your car, but way more intense. Yes. Like, it, nah, it's not a perfect comparison. It's not, a, right, but it, it's definitely like when you're thinking about a parameter to describe how efficient your car is, you yes. go to miles per gallon. Yes, that's what I'm trying to get if to. If you yeah. think about a term to describe how efficient and um, An how much is. thrust you can get out of your rocket, you think about ISP. Yes, exactly. That's a much better breakdown. Yeah. You were there, Anna. Thank you. I needed a little help. Um, so, uh, so back to chemical propulsion. Chemical propulsion has a very high thrust-to-weight ratio. 
So they're suitable for launch applications and reaching orbital velocity because they have that significant amount of oomph in the beginning. Chemical propulsion is mass limited, which means it's limited by the available mass of the fuel. You can only burn what you carry. Exactly. So again, if we're going to continue this car metaphor, you can only go as far as the amount of gas in your tank will allow you to. Yep. Your car cannot make more gas. Exactly. Neither can your rocket engine. (laughs) Your chemical rocket engine. Well, yes. (laughs) But there's a lot of talk about creating fuel in space. We'll have a... That's a a different thing. That's a whole different thing. At this moment right now, we can't do that. Exactly. Um... So electric propulsion is when things get spicy. It's very different. Um, The propellant exiting an electric thruster is in the form of charged particles, which is pretty crazy to think about. And electric propulsion systems in principle can achieve hundreds of thousands of seconds of specific impulse. So chemical propulsion, we talked about 500 seconds of specific impulse. Let this sink in, electric propulsion systems can achieve hundreds of thousands of seconds of ISP. Okay, this always confuses me. Let's hear it. Because I hear that and I think, wow, you must be able to generate so much thrust, but you obviously can't generate that much thrust because thrust to an extent is dependent on your mass. Yes. Because mass is momentum. Yes. And electrons have almost no mass. Yes. So how do you get such a high ISP and any thrust at all if electrons have almost no mass? Yes. So... ISP is thrust divided by the propellant mass flow rate. So when you have uh, low mass flow rates, you have very low mass flow rates in electropropulsion systems, and you combine that with the low amounts of thrust that is produced, it the way it mathematically will work out is just longer periods of engine operation. So your en- the high ISP in this case just means that it can go for a really long time. Exactly. It can run for a very long time. So because... So that's why they're better for space travel beyond Earth's gravitational pull as opposed to getting out of Earth's gravitational pull. Because they can only generate so much thrust. Exactly. So that's why chemical propulsion is really good for first and second stages is because they produce so much thrust. Gotcha. Um, But electric propulsion, because of its low thrust, it can last for a longer period of time. And like Anna said, because of the very low mass of these particles... It means you just have, it's really great for long periods of space travel because you don't need to carry so much mass. Excuse me. That's why electric propulsion is considered in a lot of missions to, Mo- to Mars. And electric propulsion is limited by the electrical power available on board the spacecraft. But could you use it in conjunction with something like solar panels so you could generate more electrical yes. power? Excellent question. So, yes. You can. So solar energy is awesome for, is an awesome source of energy for electric propulsion. So actually I was reading that NASA's Glenn Research Center in Cleveland um, is leading the Solar Electric Propulsion Project, SEP. Cool. Yeah. And so what SEP is doing is that they're trying to develop technologies to enable government and commercial customers to extend the length of propulsion time via the use of uh, solar arrays and electric propulsion. And this can lead to uh, spacecrafts using 10 times less propellant than a comparable conventional chemical propulsion system. And the way this works is that you're using the solar energy from your solar arrays in space and converting that 
for uh, converting that for energy that can be used for electric propulsion. But you still can't... So it depends on like where you are and what you're using the solar energy for. So for example, when you're going to Mars, the solar constant does decrease a good amount. So by 57%, the solar constant decreases. Okay. And so the solar constant is a measure of solar electromagnetic radiation per unit area. Is that just how much sun you're getting? Exactly. Yeah, that's just a fancy term for how much sun you're getting. Gotcha. Um, So this means that you'll need really huge solar panels. So what you're trying to say is that as you go from Earth to Mars, the amount of sun that you are getting decreases significantly. Yeah. So the solar panels you would use on Earth wouldn't necessarily be as effective when you get farther and farther away from the sun. Exactly. So then you can start considering like maybe a hybrid use of solar energy and nuclear energy. So there's also electric propulsion can also be powered by um, nuclear energy, which is pretty nifty. Cool. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and go into detail With ion propulsion and Hall effect thrusters, there are several different types of electric propulsion systems, but I chose these two because these two are the most commonly talked about. Gotcha. So this is where we're going to dive deep um, into the physics of ion propulsion. So to begin, an ion thruster ionizes propellant by adding or removing electrons to produce ions. What this is... This is done by electron bombardment, which is where a high-energy electron collides with a propellant atom, and usually this propellant is of neutral charge. What then happens is that it releases electrons from the propellant atom, this neutrally charged propellant atom, and it results in a positively charged ion. The gas produced consists of positive ions and negative electrons in proportions that result in a no overall electric charge. And this, um, this stuff is called plasma. <laughs> <laughs> so plasma has some of, the, some of the properties of gas, but it is affected by electric and magnetic fields. An example, a common example would be lightning. The most common propellant used in ion Wait, propulsion... so you're saying an example of plasma would be lightning is plasma? Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, fun fact. That's cool. It is. Um, so the most common propellant used in ion propulsion is xenon. Xenon is easily ionized and has a high atomic mass, which means it can generate a good amount of thrust when ions are accelerated. It is inert and has a high storage density, so it's easy to store on spacecraft. I was about to say, that's an, it's a noble gas, right? Yeah. So, throwing it back, a noble gas means it's inert. The noble gas term. It just reminds me of high school. Um, What is it? Noble gas is stable. Halogens and alkalis react aggressively. There's an element song. Beautiful. So, halogens. You get 100% 100 on your periodic table quiz, Anna. (laughs) I worked at a daycare, and they uh, were learning the element song. And so, for, like, months, they sang the element song over and And over over and over again. And now it's just stuck in your memory yes, forever. There's some good information in there. It haunts you. But I only know it in song. <laughs> uh, yeah. Heck yeah. Because That's if awesome. you go down, and then they get more reactive as you go down the table. That's right. The periodic table. It's Thank magical. you, little element song. Look that up on YouTube. We can link it. It's the element song. It's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that in our sources. <laughs> um, all right. So where was I? Uh, yeah, so... 
xenon, it's inert, has a high storage density, a noble gas, if you will. Um, it just means it doesn't react with anything. Yes. In most ion thrusters, electrons are generated with the discharge hollow cathode by a process called thermionic emission. So I said a bunch of words here. There's a lot of words. I'm going to break it down. <laughs> so I just used two complex terms. The first one, a discharge hollow tube. What is that? A discharge hollow tube, um, in this case, the discharge hollow cathode, is basically a hollow tube with a plate on the end. The tube has an insert in the shape of a cylinder that is placed inside the tube and pushed against the plate. This insert is the active electron emitter. The cathode tube, this discharge cathode tube, is wrapped with a heater that raises the insert temperature um, to emissive temperatures to start the discharge. And this is where I'm going to go into the second fancy term that I just said, thermionic emission. So thermionic emission is really interesting. It's the process of freeing electrons from an electrode due to temperature. So this occurs because the thermal energy given to the whatever that substance is, the carrier, overcomes the work function of the material. The work function is basically the minimum energy needed to remove an electron from a solid to a point in the vacuum immediately outside the solid surface. Okay, so what that's saying is because of some temperature change, the electrons leave whatever atom they were rotating around. Exactly. Okay, so does that change what atom like what element that was no 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 it's just it's just a process of generating those electrons okay oh so through temperature you convince those electrons to leave whatever atom they were previously i always think of it as orbiting because you yes. see the little yeah, standard yeah, yeah. ion uh, exactly. elect, uh atom photos okay that's cool it's fancy it's fun i get it so, how is stress actually produced in electric propulsion? I get that you pull these electrons away. Yes. What do you do with them? So, the electrons are produced by that discharge cathode, and they're attracted to these chamber walls, which are charged to a very high positive um, voltage that's applied by the power supply that is on this thruster. And that propellant that we were just talking about is injected into this discharge chamber, where the electrons bombard the propellant to produce these positively charged ions and release more electrons. So then these ions migrate toward these grids that co contain thousands of um, very precise holes, also referred to as apertures. So these ions rush towards these grids um, at the end of the ion thruster. And basically what happens is that as these ions pass between the grids, they're accelerated toward a negatively charged electrodes to very high speeds, up to 90,000 miles per hour. The positively charged ions, as they're accelerated out of the thruster um, as an ion beam, produce thrust. Okay. So the only way you can get thrust is because they go that fast. Exactly. So I was thinking of momentum. Momentum equals mass times velocity. MV, yeah. So you have a really high velocity, and because yes. you have such a small mass, you still get a momentum that can produce thrust. Exactly. So exactly. when you have chemical propellants, what ends up happening is you can have a lower velocity, velocity but you but have a higher, higher mass. mass. Yes. yes. But they still come out to be significantly higher than you could get with electric propulsion 
because the very small mass of those electrons swings it in the favor of it producing a lower momentum right cool yeah it's really cool it's it's amazing to think about that you're just accelerating these ions these charged particles through electric grids that have a voltage applied to them and then you get the rust so you take a particle that we cannot see and cannot weigh by any standard means that we have in our home you can get that to accelerate so fast that it can propel an object forward yeah, 90,000 miles per hour. Like, that's crazy. It's really crazy. And the whole reason for Paul is it's essentially like you pushing down so you can get the object to go the mm-hmm. other way. It's just a force balance. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. That's how acceleration works. That's how force and thrust work. Um, that's insane to me. Super interesting. Wow. But yeah. So, um... Next, I'm going to go ahead and I just talked about the ion thruster, but I'm going to dive a little bit into the Hall effect thruster. So I was watching a YouTube video. I was trying to figure out how to talk about this because the Hall effect thruster is physically, in terms of physics, it's very heavy. Um, So I was watching a YouTube video about it um, by this channel called the SciShow, by SciShow Space. And I'll have it linked in the sources. And I really love the description that the host um, provided for uh, a Hall Effect thruster. He described it as a glowing bullseye. And it truly does look like a glowing bullseye. It really does. It really does. If you just Google Hall Effect thruster, you'll see what we mean. The Hall Effect thruster was invented in the 1960s. And like ion thrusters, it works by accelerating charged particles. So just quickly, ions are particles that are either negatively charged or positively charged. If you remove an electron from an atom, you will get a positively charged ion. If you add an electron to an atom, you'll get a negatively charged ion. Exactly. Yes. So that's why ions have more masses than electrons. Right. Because ions are atoms, which contain electrons. Yes. Electrons would be part of an atom. Exactly. An atom has a nucleus, neutrons, protons electrons yeah. bringing it back to chemistry heck yeah the hall effect thruster has a few circular channels and between each channel there are magnetic coils that generate a magnetic field at the bottom of the channels as these circular channels you have electrically charged plates um, which is your anode that will create an electric field you also have a cathode that's somewhere outside of these channels that releases the electrons so then what happens is that when these electrons are released the electrons are attracted to the anode which is the plate at the bottom of these circular channels so these electrons head to the anode but then oh no they get pulled by the magnetic field that i just mentioned earlier um the magnetic field that's generated by the magnetic coils that are in these circular channels So as these electrons are accelerating towards the anode, they get pulled, they get sucked in by the magnetic field, and they start racing around the circular structure of the circular channels. The Hall thruster then injects a neutral gas, such as xenon, into the thruster. The xenon gets hit by these electrons, which knocks some of its electrons out. And this leads to ions. Gotcha. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So then we have this 
electric field that also existed exists in the um in the hall effect thruster the electric field pushes the xenon ions out of the thruster at super high speeds up to more than about 50,000 miles per hour and this is what generates the thrust for the spacecraft so the physics can get really intense into this and i'm providing a pretty high level description here but if you want a general description with pictures um, I would highly recommend the SciShow YouTube video. It breaks down how a Hall Effect thruster works and has some pretty nice um, animation to go along with it. And I'll have that linked in our sources. Also, there's a technical college lecture um, from University of Michigan that also dives into the physics. And I have that linked in our sources as well. That was a really nice breakdown. Thanks, Anna. There's it was really hard to come up with a breakdown that, like, because this is a podcast and we can't, you can't see the pictures immediately, you're probably listening to this on your Yeah, drive I'm a home very visual a learner <laughs> and it can be tricky. It, yeah. It can be really tricky, but I thought you did a really good job. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how the idea of electron propulsion first came about, when it came about. We're going to do a little history breakdown. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, that's going to be pretty intense though. There was a lot more history there than I thought. So we're going to take a little break first. That sounds great, Anna. We're back from our break. We're back. And for you listening at home, it's probably been 10 seconds or for however long we put the music in there. So, or maybe one day an ad if anybody out there is so inclined. <laughs> uh, but it's actually been three days because <laughs> we had to end early last time so I could go to running club. How was running club, by the way? Running club's fun. I hadn't been in a long time because I hurt my knee. Yeah. You, know, you obviously know yes. that. <laughs> How's the knee doing it's for good. our listeners? It's really good. I hurt my knee trying to run for a marathon. Trying to run, trying to train for a marathon. So I ran a half marathon, which was still cool and great and an accomplishment. Um, I was trying to do that over the summer. Yeah, Anna's an awesome runner. You are so nice to me, honey. You are too. We've done a few of those uh, Ragnar race things where you sleep in a van. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we get so excited to sign up for them. And then when we're there, we're like, we are never going to do this again. And then a few months go by and we sign up for another one. (laughs) Forget it. I was thinking about this the other day. I think I will just stick to the camping ones from now on. Yes. Because you actually get to sleep in the camping ones. Yes. And like, I'm sorry, getting three hours of sleep on the floor of who knows where, like a school parking lot. Isn't that fun? So for those of you who don't know, um, the Ragnar race comes in two versions. It's a relay race that comes in either a van version or the camp version. Yeah, so it's like, they call it trail or road. Correct. So trail, you stay in one spot and everybody runs the same set of trails. And it's over 36 hours. Yeah, thank you. Good piece of tip. And the road one, you actually have to drive in these big vans. So it's not like the whole group has to go together. Right. So you can only sleep when everybody else has finished running. It's really fun. It's a lot of fun. I've done it enough times, though. Yep. It is really fun, though. It's a lot of fun, but it you do feel very sleep-deprived after the van one. You do. Yeah. The camping one, you don't get to bond with your team quite as much, but you do get a full night's sleep. That's true. So take what you can get. <laughs> All right. You ready to do this? Well, I guess it's my turn, right? Yeah. Now let's learn some days. history of electric propulsion. Okay. 
So when I started doing this research, I was like, how much history can there really be on electric propulsion? Electricity in and of itself, as we know it, hasn't really... We haven't known about it for all that long in the scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't sure. Actually, there is a lot more history to this than I anticipated at all. So while I was researching, I found this really awesome article that got me through the whole beginning of my research <laughs> section called A Critical History of Electric Propulsion, The First 50 Years, and in parentheses 1906 to 1956, it's in the Journal of Propulsion and Power, Volume 20, and it was, oh man, I think it's Choiri, it's C-H-O-U-E-I-R-E-I at all. We'll link it in the sources. This article is incredibly in-depth about the history of electric propulsion for the first 50 years. Yeah, also Volume 20, what are all the other 19 volumes about? I think it's just the Journal of Propulsion and Power, Volume 20. Oh, okay, okay. I don't think it's just this is Volume 20 on the first 50 years. <laughs> There's 19 other volumes about oh, no, electric <laughs> propulsion. That's, that's a lot. That's an entire encyclopedia about uh, just the first, not even to, <laughs> then until today, just the first 50 years. Uh, that's intense. That would be a lot. That would be a lot. Okay. So let's get this moving. Uh, it began with the visionaries. So I thought that was cool. So I copied them. So essentially the biggest space visionary of them all is Konstantin Eduardovich Tchaikovsky. He lived from 1857 to 1935. He is commonly known as the father of rocketry. If this name sounds familiar to you, it is because we actually talked about him for a little briefly in our last episode, The Space Elevator. I had never really dug into him that much. I he and he created the rocket equation, which is what we specifically talked about in the Space Elevator episode. He's a really fascinating guy. I think we should do an entire episode on him. Oh, yeah, I agree. He was um, hard of hearing when he was born, so he wasn't uh, put into school. And I think most of he was self-taught. It's really impressive. But So the official history of modern rocketry and astronautics starts in 1903, with Tchaikovsky's eventually celebrated article, Investigation Anna. of Universal Space by Means of Reactive Devices. Anna, so, how are you saying his last name? Tchaikovsky? Isn't it Tchaikovsky? I'm pretty sure it's Tchaikovsky, but let's find out. Pronouncenames.com. Well, that doesn't help. Tsiolkovsky. Konstantin Eduardovich Well, I'm not even going to get that close to that. <laughs> but Tsiolkovsky himself. What? How do you say this guy's name? Tsiolkovsky. Tsiolkovsky himself is a really fascinating guy. <laughs> I think we should do an entire episode dedicated to him. He was actually, I didn't know this. I knew the rocket equation, but I didn't know much about him personally. He was hard of hearing and uh, didn't go to, like, wasn't traditionally schooled. So he taught himself a lot of what he knew. It's really interesting. Oh, wow. I didn't really, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. So the official history of modern rocketry and astronautics starts in 1903 with Tchaikovsky's eventually celebrated article, Investigation of Universal Space by Means of Reactive Devices. This is where he derived the rocket equation, which is considered to be, and this is a quote from the article, the most fundamental mathematical expression in the field of space propulsion. So this is a quote from the, the a critical history of electric propulsion, not a quote from Tchaikovsky's article about the rocket equation, <laughs> to be clear. So eight years later in 1911, he wrote a paper and in which, this is a direct quote from Tchaikovsky's paper, it is possible that in time we may use electricity to produce a large velocity from the particles ejected from a rocket device. Essentially what he's describing there is he's saying in the future he thinks electric propulsion could exist. Which is really amazing because he wrote this in 1911. 
I was trying to find the name of the paper he wrote it in and even the paper itself. I couldn't find it anywhere online. It's also very possible that it's written in Russian. Uh, or he might be Ukrainian. Either way, it's also very possible it's out there and not written in English. But if anybody knows, email us. I'd really like to read it. So Tsiolkovsky pondered a flux of electrons to be useful for propulsion. My first question in reading this, and the article actually brings this up too, but in a lot more depth than I'm going to talk about it, is, okay, again, the article as in the 50 years of <laughs> propulsion, not the article Tsiolkovsky wrote. Why did he only ponder electrons and not ions? So ions are just, they weigh a lot more. Why do they only ponder electrons? They have such a smaller mass. My first instinct would be like, oh, why wouldn't why wouldn't you think of ions ahead of electrons? And the reason for this is because Tchaikovsky knew electrons had an exceedingly small mass and therefore a really small momentum flux, but ions had actually not been discovered yet by 1911. Electrons were the only things known at the time of a ca- with the capability of achieving the velocities that electrons can. Wow. So he didn't... The, essentially the world at the time the world of science did not know that ions existed yet that's crazy so the only way he could fathom electric propulsion would be with electrons yeah it's like use what you have what you know of exactly so why Tchaikovsky did a significant amount of analysis regarding chemical rockets he never did any involving electric propulsion the main reason i could find for this is essentially that there's no historical documentation or essentially a reason to believe that Tchaikovsky was educated or had the sufficient knowledge or training regarding electricity and magnetism in order to do the analytical work. Essentially, he had the background in chemical propulsion. He did not have the background in electricity and magnetism. But it's still really interesting that he pondered a flux of electrons being used for propulsion. that's nuts. Because that that quote I said earlier, like, is it possible that in time we may use electricity to produce a large velocity for the particles ejected from a rocket device? Yeah. He wrote that in 1911. That's crazy. Like, what a forward-thinking man. I know. So that's nuts to me. So he essentially is the first person to write down and publish the idea of electric propulsion. So then we've got a whole 50 years to talk about here. So we're going to enter Robert Hutchings Goddard. Again, so Robert Hutchings Goddard was 1882. He lived from 1882 to 1945. This sounds familiar to you. It's probably because of NASA Goddard. So he was an academic physicist in his early career. His official research was split between electricity and his personal passion, which was propulsion. So it's almost, the article used the word happenstance. I thought that was a good word for this. <laughs> his eventual happenstance on electric propulsion was more or less inevitable. His, two, his research was in electricity and his passion was propulsion. He's probably going to put the two together at some point. So in his notebook in the year 1906, Goddard brings up the concept of electric propulsion. And a quote from his journal is, At enormous potentials can electrons be liberated at the speed of light. And if the potential is still further increased, will the reaction increase to what extent or will radioactivity be produced? Wait, so why is Solkowski credited with originating the idea of electric propulsion, but Goddard wrote about it five years earlier? Because Solkowski was credited for it um, and it was back in 1911 uh, when his article was written. So I was curious about this, too, because um, I was like, if Goddard discovered it in 1906, why is Tchaikovsky given credited with essentially discovering it? Mm -hmm. And it's because that Tchaikovsky published it in a paper. So it was published Uh... and put out there. Goddard wrote about it 
what is it, five years earlier, but it was just a notebook entry, and it was in 1906, and I don't think it was discovered until many years later. It was possibly not even discovered until after he died. So technically, Goddard may have written it down first. Tchaikovsky published it first. So that's why he is credited. That's a good Mm. question. I I was curious about that, too. Yeah. So back to Goddard. Goddard's knowledge of electricity and magnetism at the time was not complete enough for Goddard to be able to answer his own questions regarding the feasibility of electric propulsion. And saying that sentence out loud, it kind of sounds like we're knocking. It's like knocking him to be like, he didn't know enough. Yeah, Yeah. of course not. Nobody knew enough. Right. (laughs) There wasn't even enough knowledge or discoveries out there yet. Um, However, he did remain hopeful for his entire career that experiments might determine the voltage necessary, and it's in quotes, the voltage necessary to give a speed equal to the velocity of light. So at this point, if you remember a little earlier, talking about Tchaikovsky, ions had not existed yet. However, Goddard Goddard actually did reach the point that development in physics regarding cathode rays had been made, which means the existence of ions had been established. So while Goddard was working on this, ions had been established. So a lot of historians question why Goddard chose to focus on electrons when he knew that ions existed. The article provides a whole bunch of theories for this. I'm not going to dig into it. (laughs) Uh, If you're curious about it, check out the article. It gets pretty intense about this. Oh, wow. But essentially, it doesn't really matter too, too much for what we're trying to get to. So now we're going to jump ahead 53 years to 1964. So on July 20th, 1964... Space Electric Rocket Test 1, or called CERT-1, CERT-1, I'm going to start over. So on July 20th, 1964, Space Electric Rocket Test 1, or CERT-1, was launched into orbit on a Scout rocket. Okay, a really quick aside. I didn't know anything about Scout at all. I was like, is this an American rocket? Yeah, I've never heard of Scout. I never learned about it in school, nothing. So, SCOUT stands for Solid Controlled Orbital Utility Test. And it was the first, and actually for a long time, it was the only multi-stage orbital launch vehicle to be entirely composed of a solid fuel stages. So, meaning it only utilized solid rocket motors, or SRMs, and there was no liquid propulsion. So, an SRM is literally exactly what it sounds like. It's a solid rocket motor. If you have ever launched a hobby rocket yourself besides like an air rocket or a water one you can buy estes makes them i just think of estes makes them they're these little uh god they're like, they're like six... cartridges yes that's the right word yes. i know because i had a hobby rocket and i used one of those <laughs> yes i had a job one summer where i uh, was trying to make a like a rocket activity for a summer camp uh-huh. and was testing out all different sizes of them they're little cartridges of just like solid rocket like, you light it, and that's what goes off. Yep. Or like a firework, essentially. Yes. That would be a solid rocket motor. That's a great way to describe it. But it's that, but a whole lot bigger. So this was actually used from 1961 to 1994 to put small satellites into orbit around Earth. So this actually existed during my life, which I also had no idea about it. I assumed it was really old. But it, yeah. What was that, 33 years that it launched? Wow. Yeah, Scout Scout launched for 33 years. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to hop back to CERT-1, even though Scout's cool. So CERT-1 is a NASA probe used to test electrostatic ion thruster design. And it was built at the NASA Lewis Research Center, which is now called NASA Glenn. Yeah, I read this. I was like, where's NASA Lewis? It's because they renamed it to NASA Glenn. (gasps) So CERT-1 had two electric propulsion, or EP, engines. It had an 8-centimeter diameter cesium contact ion engine. So this was designed to operate at 6 kilowatts and provide 5.6 millinewtons of thrust. 
I put this in pounds for us because I don't know what millinewtons are. <laughs> so that's 0 0.00126 pounds of thrust. So for comparison, the most common rocket engine I can think of is the Rocketdyne F1. So there are five on the first stage of the Saturn V, and it produces 1,522,000 pounds of thrust. Wow. Which is insane, yeah, because compared to the 0. 0.00126 pounds of thrust... That's crazy. Yeah. And so it was that times seven to get the Saturn V to orbit. Yeah. These numbers, like the difference between electric propulsion and chemical propulsion is wild. Because but electric propulsion can take you farther. It just can't carry as much mass. Because that's like larger on the order of, I think, a billion would be how you get from 0.00126 to Holy, 1,522,000. Oh my gosh. That is nuts. If I did the math right. Yeah. It's insanity. Which I think is just a... It's a better, essentially, quantitative example about why electric propulsion is better for deep space. Yes. Because you can have that little bit of thrust for a really long time. Right. So that's why it's, like, it's conceptualized to be able to use electric propulsion to carry um, materials for the crew to Mars as opposed to the crew itself. Yes, exactly. Because the crew can wait um, on Earth while all the supplies are being carried out to another planet or an asteroid. Yes, exactly. So not only is the propellant really expensive, especially if you think of just in the case of the F1, propellants are really expensive. Yes. But you also, in order to get out of the Earth's atmosphere, you need an incredibly high velocity. So you Correct. need a lot of thrust. So yes. electric propulsion will probably never get us there, mm -hmm. at least to the extent to which we understand electric propulsion right now. It doesn't mean we'll never get there in the future. All right, we've talked a lot about this first engine. So it was cesium flow controlled by a boiler and a porous tungsten ionizer electrode. That's kind of a mouthful. So, quick summary. First engine was an 8-centimeter diameter cesium contact ion engine. We're hopping to the second one. The second engine is a 10-centimeter diameter mercury electron bombardment ion engine. There's a lot of words in these things. Yeah, that is a lot of words. So this was designed for 1.4 kilowatt power level with 28 millinewtons of thrust. So previously, we had the, the cesium engine has 5.6 millinewtons of thrust. This one has 28. In pounds force, that's 0 0.00629. A little bit bigger than our cesium friend, still very small. Mm -hmm. So flow is controlled by a boiler and a stainless steel plug. So the first portion of the flight was dedicated to the operation of the cesium engine. And unfortunately, it actually could not be started. When they investigated it, it was because of a high-voltage electron short circuit. That's a bummer. It is a bummer. However, they did have that second engine on there to test, and so as a result, the mission was not a failure. So 14 minutes into the launch, the Mercury engine was successfully started. So that's that 10-centimeter one. This operated for 31 minutes with 53 high-voltage recycle events, and there were no electromagnetic... What does the I stand for? Interference. Thank you. <laughs> And there were no electromagnetic or EMI issues detected. So that's something we didn't really kind of touch on. There's a lot of concern with EMI. Uh, there's a lot of concern with electric propulsion engines that they could interfere with the other electronics on the spacecraft or rocket or satellite. However, they didn't test. They didn't see any EMI issues when it came to this. What is this? Ten centimeter mercury electron bombardment engine. So the, because of this successful operation, it was the first spacecraft to use an ion engine design. There were two attempts to test EP in space actually before CERT-1. It wasn't the first try. So in 1962, 
United States Air Force Program 661A, Flight A, also tried to test a CCMI engine. This was a suborbital engine that never operated. And then in 1963, the Russian Cosmos 21, this actually used PTFE and was a pulsed plasma thruster. I was reading this and I was like, why do I know, like PTFE felt really familiar to me. And what it stands for is polytetrafluoroethylene, te which is Teflon. And Teflon's that material that's used to coat your nonstick pans. Yes, exactly. I was like, why is PTFE? Yeah. And then I Googled it and I was like, oh yeah, it's obviously polytetrafluoroethylene. And then they're like, that's Teflon. I was like, that should have come first in the Google search. Yeah. <laughs> so can I actually explain pulse plasma thruster real quick? Because I didn't go into that in the what is electric propulsion section earlier. Oh yeah, please. So PPTs, pulse plasma thrusters, are generally considered the simplest form of electric spacecraft propulsion, and it was flown on two Soviet probes um, back in, 19, in the 1960s. So unlike ion thrusters that create thrust by propelling a bunch of ions, which are those electrically charged particles, pulsed plasma thrusters use plasma, uh, which again is that fourth state of matter. It's super hot. It kind of behaves like a gas, and it's made of charged ions, but it has that neutral overall charge. And unlike the other states of matter, uh, our other states being solid, liquid, and gas, plasma can be directed by electric and magnetic fields. So to generate plasma, pulse plasma thrusters are really cool in the, in the fact that they consume Teflon, like Anna just stated. Um, and... The way a PPT works, a pulse plasma thruster, is that you have this block of tef Teflon between two metal plates. Wires charge up these metal plates with electricity until the electricity arcs between the plates. And when this arc hits the Teflon, it immediately zaps what it comes in contact with. Um, that first, the initial layer of Teflon, it zaps it and the Teflon then turns into ions that then forms a plasma. And it will keep arcing and zapping away at the Teflon to continuously be, continuously be forming plasma. This plasma then starts to travel down the metal plates. So you have this electricity flowing down and moving electricity uh, leads to a magnetic field which then exists in a way such that it will push the plasma out of the thruster system. And then basically Newton's third law comes into effect. For every action, there's a reaction. So plasma's headed in one direction, your spacecraft is then headed in the other direction. But yeah, that's what pulse plasma thrusters are. Nice. That was such a good description, Anna. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, they're really cool. It's also really cool because it does use Teflon. Which, I just um, love electric propulsion. It's just so nifty. <laughs> it's really neat. So then, as I mentioned earlier, this didn't actually fly because CERT-1 was the first electric propulsion utilized in space, well, actually, to function in space. I couldn't figure out exactly what happened. I ended up just, I think, it must have been some kind of launch failure. Mm. That's as much as I could find, which is yeah. really a bummer. But Russia did not give up. So on November 30th, 1964... The Russian Zon-2 was launched into orbit. So this was a PTFE, pulse plasma thruster, again, and it successfully operated for 70 minutes, which is really awesome. So the success of CERT-1 led to CERT-2. So this is essentially, the whole goal of CERT-2 was extended operation of an ion engine in space. 
the goal of CERT-1 was to see if you could operate an ion engine in space, period. So then they're like, okay, we did it. Now let's do extended operation of one. Cool. Great. Cool. Makes sense. So this launched on February 3rd, 1970 from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California on an Agena. So this had two identical Mercury engines. I'm assuming this was for redundancy. So essentially what that means is that if one of them breaks, you could use the other one. Probably after CERT 1, <laughs> like, let's put you with the same thing on there. So one operated for more than five months and the other for almost three months. And they had up to 300 thruster restarts that were demonstrated. Essentially what I think that means is they want to show that you can turn it off and back on, like restart the thruster. At least that was my best understanding of it. Yeah. This again had no EMI, so electro electrical magnetic interference or EMC electro I have so many so much trouble with that word. Electromagnetic compatibility issues. It's a lot of syllables. Yeah. So jumping ahead to October twenty fourth, nineteen ninety eight, Deep Space One or DS one was launched on a Delta two as the first official mission of the new Millennium program. Digging around on the NASA website, I actually found the press kit for this, which was really cool. Cool. I found the press kit for Deep Space One, which also went into the Millennium, the new Millennium program. What's what's a press kit? Um, it's just like I think all the stuff that they give to the press about the program. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like when they launch a rocket or a satellite or something, they'll give the press like a booklet of all the information that they want them to have or oh, allowed very to publish cool. and that kind of stuff. It went into a lot of depth. We'll also put it in our sources. It's really cool. So Deep Space One was supposed it was the first mission of the New Millennium Program. So the press kit went into a lot of depth about what the New Millennium Program was. I had never heard about this, but it was created in 1994. And a direct quote from this Deep Space One press kit was, The goal of the New Millennium Program is to identify and test advanced technologies that will provide spacecraft with the capabilities they need in order to achieve NASA's vision. Through a series of deep space and Earth observing flights, the new Millennium Program will demonstrate these promising but risky technologies in space in order to validate them. So essentially it sounded like the new goal of the new Millennium Program was to try to make deep space flight a reality through proof of concept experiments. So a proof of concept experiment is essentially kind of a more bare bones way to prove if whether or not something will work. So you could very easily call CERT 1 and CERT 2 proof of concept experiments for electric propulsion. It's almost like uh, these are prototype revisions. Prototype. That's a much better word. Thank you. Exactly. So the whole goal, it seemed like what I took away was that the whole goal of the new millennium program was to prototype technology and test it and improve it for use with deep space travel. Unfortunately, it was removed from the budget in 2009, so the U.S. budget, and was canceled as a result. Oh. So that's really unfortunate. So it sounded fancy, but was it meant to test some form of electric propulsion? So Deep Space One was. The whole new Millennium Program, electric propulsion was on the list for them to test, but there was also a whole bunch of other things. Gotcha. But the goal of Deep Space One was to test electric propulsion, which is a good inference because that's why it's in here. Yeah. So the main purpose was to validate around a dozen technologies. So the New Millennium Program's main purpose was to validate around a dozen technologies. A major one being solar electric propulsion. So we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. Hannah talked about this. What's nice about a solar electric propulsion is that you can produce electrons and energy in flight. Yes. 
because you're using solar energy exactly. um, to then power your electric propulsion thrusters. Yes, there are. And Hannah did talk about this. There are some issues with this and the fact that the further away you get from the sun, the less solar constant. Thank you. I was like, power from the sun? <laughs> no, it's basically the same thing. That's the better word um, you're going to get. So you would need much larger solar panels. But beyond the point, it is a really good way to produce energy in space. So the Deep Space One did successfully do that. It was the first interplanetary spacecraft to use an ion engine. In addition to this, it completed successful flybys of asteroid 9969, Braille, and the comet Borelli. So this is B-O-R-R-E-L-L-Y. And it produced what are still considered to be some of the best clopes of images of asteroids or comets. You can find them online. They're actually pretty cool. Ooh. Another sidetrack. In November of 1999, DS-1 lost its star tracker. So essentially this is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, a star tracker, st- a star tracker to just like really simplify it, takes a picture of the sky and then will tell you how the spacecraft is oriented depending on what stars it's looking at. Yeah. Like it's really crazy technology it is it's really cool and i just love the name star tracker yeah it's literally exactly what it is it's like i see this pattern of stars which means i'm oriented in this direction right satellites use them they're very common they are very common they're really cool technology so it lost its star tracker that's a big deal because that's how it determines its orientation and this could have been a mission-ending failure however in june of 2000 engineers figured out a workaround they realized that they could use a camera on board to navigate so i don't know if they turned it into a star tracker or what but they realized they're like we can at we can upload software to this camera and it can serve in place of the star tracker so that's exactly what they did oh cool software was radioed to the probe and the patch worked and then this is considered to be one of the most successful robotic rescues in the history of space exploration wow i know well, i was reading beautiful about space one i was like that's cool so the successful operation of ep engines have led to significant research being put into the field By the early 2010s, many satellite manufacturers began offering EP options for their satellites. I'm not going to go into detail about this too much because Hannah's actually going to talk to us about this. Yay! But that was a pretty hefty section. Yeah, that was. But it was so interesting. Thanks. I I got way more into that than I thought I was going to when I was researching it. I just, there's so many cool, like Goddard's a really cool guy. Sikovsky's a really cool guy. I, I kind of want to know more about their lives. Yeah. This we should totally Space do. This one rescue was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the drama of the history. Yeah. I didn't know Scout. I didn't know there was any rocket that had multi-stages that were all solid rocket motors. Yeah. And, like, going back to what we've talked about in our earlier episodes, like, for Scout, it's crazy how we we hear about, like, the common buzzwords of aerospace, and then yeah. you don't hear about all these other missions that are happening. No, somebody at work was actually impressed I had that fact in my pocket. Heck yeah. Like, yeah, Scout was all SRMs, right? And they were like, yeah, 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 I'm impressed you know that. I was like, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I studied it one week ago. <laughs> no. It's not like I just read that. <laughs> uh, we yeah, love doing this podcast. <laughs> what did you just say, Anna? Oh, I had never learned about Scout before. Me neither. And it, it did operate when I was alive, which is crazy to me. I first reading about it, I was like, it must be really old. It's not that old. <laughs> All right, I need to walk around for a second. Yeah, let's take a break. Sweet. Okay. All right, we're back from our break. We're back, and this time it has actually only been a few minutes. <laughs> so then Hannah went to the bathroom while she was in the bathroom. We're at her apartment. 
I did a lap around our apartment to be like, man, I'm hungry. I wonder if there's any snacks. <laughs> and then it occurred to me that I should probably like not eat anything and we should finish the podcast. <laughs> and then I get out of the bathroom and I see her standing in the kitchen. And I'm like, she's doing the same thing. <laughs> she's. Then Anna's like, Henna, what are you doing? And I was like, uh, I was contemplating eating snacks, but maybe we should record first. <laughs> Oh man! So we were both looking for snacks, except only one of us listening. We're on the same wavelength here. <laughs> I just really like snacks. <laughs> Me too. Uh, okay. Is it your turn? Yes. I, I feel like we had a five-minute break, and I've forgotten where I am. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be talking about current uses, and then Anna will um, be talking about future uses yeah, of electric good. propulsion. I'm excited the whole time. Let's just establish that. <laughs> I say that so much. Okay. <sighs> Please tell me about the current state of electric propulsion. I will. I didn't look into this because I wanted you to tell me about it. Um, so there are actually a few places electric propulsion is being used. And actually there are many satellites that are using electric propulsion. But I just chose a few that I could find. Um, so the first current use of electric propulsion I'm going to talk about is the Boeing 702 small platform, which has been operated by Boeing since 2012. The 702 small platform is a small satellite design, and it's part of Boeing's satellite portfolio. For those of you don't, who don't know, Boeing has a very large satellite portfolio. They have a whole branch dedicated to just satellites in uh, LA. Yeah, you can actually, I think you can check up some of the stuff they offer online. Yeah. The small platform satellite consists of an all-electric ZIPS, that's X-I-P-S, and it stands for Xenon Ion Propulsion. So it has an all-electric ZIPS system. And it has four thrusters that are used for station keeping. And station keeping, for those of you who don't know, is basically a spacecraft that is, the spacecraft is making small maneuvers to adjust, uh, to maintain its position. It's essentially like if you want a satellite, if you just leave it, it will eventually deorbit. Yes. So to keep it in orbit, you do have to make these tiny little maneuvers. Yeah. So you'll hear the term orbital station keeping. Yes. Exactly. And this is in part because of like the equatorial bulge, like the Earth isn't perfectly circular. Yeah, that's right. Fun fact. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> Actually, it's really cool. You can look at it. I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, the really cool thing about the Boeing 702 small platform is that it requires only five kilograms of fuel per year. I thought that was a fun number. That is so small. It's so small. And so, yeah, that's the small platform. Now I'm going to talk about the Falcon Sat 5. What a name. This one's really cool. So this is operated by the U.S. Air Force Academy, and it's built by students at the Air Force Academy. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really awesome. It's like they're... Uh, their like class objective is, you know, we want to teach you about space by you working on spacecraft. Cool. Which I thought that was really nifty. That's in Colorado, right? Yes, that is in Colorado. Good to know. So the Falcon Sat 5 operates in low Earth orbit. It uses solar panels for its energy source and also has an electric propulsion system on board. And the purpose of this uh, satellite is to study RF transmission and plasma measurement in the ionosphere. The ionosphere is a layer of Earth's atmosphere that is characterized by having a larger density of ions. And it's about 60 kilometers to 1,000 kilometers um, above the Earth's surface. 
And so they're basically measuring space weather. And then this next one I have is called Dawn. <laughs> Dawn's cool. I actually Dawn really is really too. cool. Uh, Anna actually, when we we're doing our research, Anna had read about it, and she's like, "Henna, you should include Dawn in the current section." Yeah, because it goes to present, so it felt weird to do it in the historical <laughs> yeah. section, but it's neat. <laughs> it's really neat. So it's operated by NASA, and it's been operated since 2007, and it's studying protoplanet Vesta and dwarf planet Ceres in the asteroid. Pl- in the asteroid belt. That just makes me think of... Have, you haven't seen The Expanse, have you? No, not yet. It's on my list. So there's like a series station that they all go to. You should, the Expanse is a, it's a, it's a sci-fi show. Uh, it's You can find that on Amazon Prime. It's great, but there's a series like station that they go to. So it's like a station in space yeah. that... Yeah, yeah. So there's like, like these people who live in what's called the belt. Uh-huh. So they're people who have spent their whole like born and lived in these... <laughs> like living habitats in the asteroid belt in the asteroid belt oh cool yes so then you have people from like you have like earth people going to the series yeah. station and then, and then from you Mars. Have... So there's one like there's Tycho. yeah and series so that's, that's super cool it's good it's a good show i need to watch it it's on my list and it's good i'm gonna watch it and then we're gonna talk about it the first episode you get through the first episode the first episode is okay that's what i've heard then it gets way better that's what i've heard um so yeah, so Dawn is studying these the protoplanet Vesta and dwarf planet Ceres in the asteroid belt, and Vesta and Ceres are the uh, earliest discovered and some of the largest asteroids. It's the first NASA mission that utilized ion propulsion to enter orbits, which oh, I thought cool. was really cool. Yes, I knew that. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> I'm because just like, you're oh, just oh yes, please educate the people about this because that is cool. <laughs> you're just amazed by the fact again. <laughs> it's just neat. I think I was like trying to express to be like, I'm excited. You told the world. <laughs> <laughs> now you know. <laughs> now you all know. Um, it can dawn consists of three ion propulsion thrusters that produce thrust of um on the order of ninety millinewtons. And then on to the next one. The next one is Galaxy 13. It's also operated by Boeing, uh, Boeing Satellite Systems. It's been operating since 2001. It had an expected lifetime of 15 years, so it's been going strong. Wow. Yeah. Because so, it would be at 19. That's right. And it's operated operated in GEO. Far away. Used, for, used to offer internet, digital video, and data services by Boeing. So... The Galaxy 13 carries four ZIPS, uh, electron-xenon-ion engines. It produces a thrust of about 17.8 millinewtons. And then this next one is the one I'm most excited to talk about. <laughs> it's called, it's the Vassimer. Um, it, Vassimer, V-A-S-I-M-R, stands for Variable Specific Impulse Magnetoplasma Rocket. It's got a really long name. Yeah, I was about to say, that's intense. Yeah, but it has such a cool uh, system. So Ad Astra is this company, and it made a lot of progress on the electric propulsion in the Vassimer, um, or just made a lot of progress on the Vassimer rocket in general after it received a grant from NASA in 2015. So just as a side note, Ad Astra, if you don't know what that means, means to the stars in Latin. Beautiful. It's commonly... a feel like people in space use it all the time. Oh, yeah. Or we have friends who sign their emails with Ad Astra, yeah. Ben. Ad Astra, John. Yeah. Ad Astra, Sarah. <laughs> or is the other one that's like per aspira Ad Astra, which means through hardships to the stars. 
people really <laughs> in space people really like this in these places. people love space things in space yeah. there's actually just that movie that's called ad astra i like it too it's cool but, oh yeah that's right there is that movie ad astra yeah we already talked about how i didn't like it so yeah we to talk about it again. let's not talk about it again never again <laughs> um so yeah so the really cool thing about the Vassimer rocket and Ad Astra is that there are claims that we can get to Mars using the Vassimer technology in 40 days, as opposed to the standard timeline that um, is on the scale of seven months. Whoa, 40 days. That's crazy. And so the reason for this is, is that the Vassimer utilizes a form of electric propulsion. It does not utilize uh, ion engines. Because ion engines are not designed to carry large payloads. They and just can't. They, they just can't. Rest. And they operate over a long period of time. So Vassimer uses plasma to generate thrust. And on top of that, it uses radio waves to heat that plasma, as opposed to electrodes like the other systems I reviewed earlier use. And in the Vassimer, the radio waves will increase the temperature of plasma to 10 million degrees Celsius. Isn't that nuts? That's so many degrees. That's so many degrees. And it's actually what the temperature of, like, inside the sun is. 10 million degrees Celsius. Wow. And then once that plasma is um, gets that hot, a magnetic nozzle is used to direct that jet of really hot plasma outside of the spacecraft. I We could do a whole episode on the Vassimer, but I just wanted to mention it for briefly for uh, use case of electric propulsion. Okay. So currently what the Vassimer team is working on is that they're working on getting the engine to a point that they could test it, that they could fire it for long periods of time at 100 kilowatts of power, which is about 10 to 100 times more than ion thrusters. But you'll need almost 2,000 times that to actually get to Mars in 40 days. So they're incrementally getting to this goal that they've set for themselves. Um, so the recent news that I read about them is that in January of 2020, just about a month ago, they completed testing of their RF power processing unit and it was, it went successfully. So currently they're just making their way to meet the goals that they have set with NASA. But yeah, super cool system. All right. You ready to learn about the future? Heck yeah. Always ready. But think, I think first. So we had this a friend listen to this and was like, you should add a section where you do something fun or play a game. So, real quick, this will be the fun section. Heck yeah. Okay. Hannah, what is your favorite space or science movie? Oh my gosh. Easy. Rocket Boys, which is the book. October and Sky. October Sky with Jake Gyllenhaal. I really like Young Jake too. Gyllenhaal. He was so little. <laughs> We're fangirling right now. Such a good movie. It's also just a great movie. Um, the book's good too. Oh man, such a good movie. It was like the first, one of the first space movies I'd ever seen. And it's just such a powerful movie of, you know, these kids in the small town who discover this passion for I know. aerospace. It's so great. It's such a good feel good. It's just such a feel good movie. You feel great at the end. Jake Gyllenhaal as a kid is in it and he's great. Yeah. So good. So good. Um, I also have the book Rocket Boys and that's also such a great read. It is. I own that, too. Yeah. It's really good. Anna, I want to turn that question around to you. <laughs> okay. That's a hard one. First of all, A, it's a tie between Xenon, Girl of the 21st gen- oh, Century. Oh, so good. A so, Disney, Disney Channel, Channel original. <laughs> I think Raven Simone's in there, too. <laughs> From That's So Raven. <laughs> yes. What a great movie. Oh, man. Or, 
Possibly Apollo 13. Ooh, also a good one. That's a great one, too. That one's a great one. Um, that, Because they're okay. Like they, it, I feel like it can't be a spoiler. It's just... It's, yeah, it's, been it's years, the news. You should know that. Right. <laughs> or First Man was great, too. But that one's so new. I don't know if that's my favorite. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Oh, Disney Channel Originals. So good. I just have all the fields right now. <laughs> I well, just love that movie. I don't know what I was doing, but I somehow watched it. I've, okay, Anna, don't even worry. I've watched that movie like five times. <laughs> I was like, this is still great. <laughs> well, you watched it recently? Yes. Why didn't you invite me? <laughs> we can watch it again. Let's do that. It might be on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> Ah, man. So good. So, so good. good. Okay. So let's talk about the future. As we've mentioned many times throughout this, electric propulsion, as we know it right now, is best suited for deep space. Because of that, you really can't carry enough repellent or enough battery power to really do these long duration missions. A way around that, as we mentioned earlier, is solar electric propulsion, which while it is not perfect, it essentially allows deep space mis- missions to carry more cargo and to use smaller launch vehicles. I couldn't find too much about any planned missions using solar electric propulsion. It's just whenever I was like doing research about like future of solar electric propulsion or yeah, just future I... of electric propulsion, everything talked about solar electric propulsion. Yes. And I ran into the same issue too, was I didn't find any uses, like no. any major uses. All I could find was like the NASA page that says that they're working towards it. Everything. Not even just NASA. Yeah. says like we're working towards solar electric propulsion. Right. This is the goal. This is what we're putting work into. Right. Yeah. Okay, I'm happy it wasn't just me. What I could find was I found something called the ARM or the Asteroid Redirect Mission. This was proposed by NASA in 2013. This is where it gets really confusing with the acronyms. So, Asteroid Redirect Mission ARM. The ARM utilized the Asteroid Retrieval Robotic Mission spacecraft. So, the ARM utilized the ARRM. I don't know who did that. The arm uses the arm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like reading these articles. Oh, I was like, man. are they messing up? Like, is somebody, oh, like, why God. does someone have two R's? Why does someone have one R? I'm pretty sure some engineer was sitting at his or her desk and they were like, hilarious. huh? They probably thought it was hilarious. Yeah, they probably thought it was hilarious. So, for those of you who don't know, in the aerospace industry, it's all about acronyms and it gets to the point where it's just kind of ridiculous. My favorite are the ones that have uppercase and lowercase yeah. letters. It's like, what are you doing? Well, actually, Vassimer, when I said Vassimer, the acronym Variable Specific Impulse Magnetoplasma Rocket, the V and A come from the word variable. Yeah. So, okay. So then in that case, the V would be capital and the A would be little. Lowercase. Yeah. <laughs> so silly. Anyway, so the arm uses the uh, R arm or whatever. <laughs> I don't understand. So the the ARRM has 50 kilowatt solar electric power robotic spacecraft. So the ARRM spacecraft would fly to a near-Earth asteroid and take a piece of it using a robotic arm. So I ran this and I was like, yeah, like a piece. Like, I was picturing, like, a softball or, like, a pebble. Maybe a globe. Yeah. Okay. So, when they say piece, I was then reading it. It's, like, the sample would be 10 to 16 feet in diameter. Oh, damn. So, like, it's not, like, a <laughs> tiny piece. I guess relative to the asteroid they're taking it from, it would be small. Oh, But I hear gosh. sample, and I was, like, like a little bit. Like, rock. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. It's, so like, they dust off you... a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no. So what the, it was actually really cool. What they were planning to do was then they would take this 10 to 16 foot diameter sample and they would put it into orbit around the moon. So just the sample. 
So they would put the sample in orbit around the moon, so that way astronauts could actually go investigate it. That's incredible. Isn't that neat? I love just that concept. I know. That they were like, instead of trying to get the thing back to Earth, we're going to put it around the moon so that astronauts can just go look at it there. Phenomenal. I thought that was such an interesting idea. What a I had cool never idea. I never thought about that. I thought that was so neat. So that would be estimated to require only a few thousand tons of xenon. That sounds like a lot. It's definitely not, especially when you would compare it to the amount of traditional chemical propellants you would need. Mm-hmm. Or liquid propellants you would need. Xenon is also a chemical. So this was originally planned for the early 2020s, and it was going to be led by JPL, or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. However, unfortunately, funding was canceled in 2008. However, solar electric propulsion is still very commonly being researched. Yes. But who knows? With all this excitement about the moon, arm, and arm, <laughs> could come back. So, that's all I had. That's awesome. I know. I thought that was fun, too. Yeah, that was really interesting. That was a good topic. Hannah picked this topic. That was a really good one. Electric propulsion is so awesome, and I was really excited that we could research this one together. I was, too. Do you want to do sources? Let's do sources. Do you want to go first? Sure. So, um, like always, Wikipedia pages as a... Uh, how do we describe it? Launch platform? Board. Yeah. Launch, whatever. Um, starting point. Starting point. And then I'll have those links in our sources. I also used a few of the NASA pages for ion propulsion. Um, and f- the JPL, the NASA JPL page had this, dis- this book series called the Descanso book series. And it has very in-depth chapters about specific parts of electric propulsion thrusters. So I used uh, chapter six um, of the Descanso book series, and I will have that linked in our sources. Um, I watched a few YouTube channel channel shows, and my favorite one was SciShow Space, and I have a few of their videos uh, also linked on our website. There's a technical PowerPoint on the physics of an electric propulsion thruster, and it's by the University of Michigan. I use that. And then I have the Ad Astra rocket link, uh, as well as the links for the different um, the different satellites that I looked at for the current uses section. Nice. How about you, Anna? All right. So I started off with that. I looked at we. I did a quick like understanding with everything from Wikipedia, so I could get kind of an idea of what mm-hmm. was going on. Then I found that article. It was actually written by researchers at Princeton. That was about the first 50 years. Um, I found a, some other papers on the AIAA website. I found, man, I got a whole bunch of stuff. I used the NASA website to learn about CERT 1, CERT 2, Scout, all that good stuff. I used Wikipedia a little bit more. I got some slides from the NASA website about electric propulsion. I did a lot from the JPL and NASA website about Deep Space One. I found that press kit from the JPL and the NASA website about Deep Space One. And then I found an article from this website called Spaceflight Insider, kind of about solar electric propulsion. And then I learned some more about solar electric propulsion from the NASA government website. Beautiful. I know. I basically used Wikipedia and NASA. Nice. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. All right. So if you enjoyed this, or if there's anything else you want to hear us talk about, 
please shoot us an email. Check out our website at butitisrocketscience.com. There's a Nifty Contact Us page. There is a Nifty Contact Us page. Use it, please. <laughs> you can also see pictures of us if you want to know what we look like. <laughs> yeah. And then um, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed this, tell your friends. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all the usual places. Yes. You can find us on Instagram at butitisrocketscience. You can find us on Twitter at butitisrs. We have a Facebook page, but it is Rocket Science. Wow, Anna. I think you covered it. I think I got all of it. That was all of it. Thank you. Good job. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm proud of you. on a roll. <laughs> you have nothing to be sorry about. That was awesome. <laughs> was like, what social media do we have? All of them? <laughs> We're also on Podcast Addict. I think oh, I'm the man. only person who uses that. <laughs> but it's a nice platform. Oh. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I think Anna and I are going to go find some snacks now. <laughs> yeah, I would love snack. <laughs> All right. Until next time, Space Cadets. T minus three, two, one, lift off. Lift off.